It is good to be with you and uh, see so many familiar faces. If you have a copy of Scripture, and I hope that you do, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is where we'll be this afternoon. I, I feel like we're in this, uh, at least I have this tough uh, spot to be in where uh, the hunger of your stomach is matching like a little bit of the competition of the hunger for the Word. And so I'm going to try to thread that needle well uh, for you this afternoon. I'm thankful for the uh, partnership of this church and... Uh, Pastor Scott, in the partnership of the gospel ministry in the St. Louis metro area, we're indeed together for the gospel. In fact, Pastor Scott is a friend whose laughter is only outmatched by his love for the Lord and uh, his love for this church. And uh, I was hoping that he would laugh uh, when I said that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I am thankful. I really am thankful for the heart of this church. And it's so good. In fact, as I came in, I saw so many familiar faces and so many of the young men who I coached in football and who I played basketball with, and now some of them, I think, have kids. And so I'm feeling it a little uh, this afternoon. But speaking of a heart for the Lord, I am just kind of curious, how is it, as we heard from Brother Don, Pastor Don, uh, that what will give us a deeper love for the Lord Jesus? What will melt our hearts and warm our hearts for the gospel. Well, I believe that the scripture teaches us that our hearts melt as we behold the love of Jesus. And so, before I unpack uh, the love of Christ in our justification and read to you Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I, I want to just, first of all, define what is love. Well, interestingly, Thomas Watson, who's a great Puritan pastor, said this about love What is love? It is a holy fire kindled in the affections, whereby a Christian is carried out strongly after God as the supreme good. What is the antecedent to love? That is, what becomes prior to love? Notice this. The antecedent of love is knowledge. The Spirit shines upon the understanding and discovers the beauties of wisdom, holiness, and mercy, and the mercy of God. Now just... Let me unpack that for a moment. Consider what this means. As we are about to hear from the very Word of God, the the revelation, God disclosing Himself and who He is and and what He desires, what you need to know is, is that as you grow in knowledge of Him, that knowledge, as we're reading, is actually aimed at your heart so that you might be inflamed with the love of Christ in your soul. So Ray Ortland, a, a pastor uh, that just retired, said this, I have learned to see the Bible as the kindling of holy fire. Scripture is meant to inform us and thus to inflame us. It's meant to illuminate our thoughts of God so that it might inflame our affections or ignite, I should say, our infections for God. So I just want you to just take in, even as Pastor Don was preaching the Word and as you're about to hear the very Word of God, what, what's happening here by the work of God's Spirit is that as you are enlightened in your mind and your understanding of His Word, of doctrine, your heart should become, by the work of the Spirit, enraptured with a deeper love for Jesus. And so as you're hearing the very Word of God to you, to know that you've been justified by faith, take in for a moment that that is intended 
to set your hearts afire for him with a deep love. So listen to the word as I, as I read it to you. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. The hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now as you can tell, Paul is making in this letter to the Romans a transition. He's making a turn. You see it there back. If you look again at verse 1, therefore. It's indicated that there's a turning, a transition. And so Paul is beginning to show us that justification makes a difference. He wants to show us the benefits. Since this now has happened, then this will flow out of it. In fact, Uh, Since you're justified, now these benefits. All the wonderful truths Paul's about to share, and I want to share with you just for a moment, all flow out of our understanding, our appreciation, and our experience of our justification. In fact, Paul uses a little bit of a shorthand. You can see it there in, in verse 1 again. We have been justified by faith. Or if you look down in verse 9, what he says, interestingly, he says, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. That's Paul's shorthand way of actually compacting all that he has said in the first four chapters of Romans. And so for just a moment, I want to unpack what it means to be Justified. What is justification? In fact, one of the most helpful things uh, in understanding doctrine, or at least one way to understand doctrine, is actually to, to, to go to, to some of the catechisms. So one of those you may be familiar with is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, or there's the Heidelberg Catechism. But notice how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines justification. Notice what it says. What is justification? Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So when Paul says at the very beginning, you have been justified... What he's saying is, we don't justify ourselves. God does the justifying of us. In fact, notice how the catechism puts it. It's an act. That is, it's a, it's a work of God. God does this. It's not a, it's not a process. 
Justification is, is this reality that God is not making us righteous, but He's declaring us righteous. Now catch that. It's not a process. He's not making us righteous. That's in our understanding of progressive sanctification. But justification is a declaration. It's a pronouncement that you are right with God. Though you're guilty under the law, you've been declared right because of what Jesus has done. So church, you can just say, declare righteous. Say that. Declare righteous. That's what justification is about. It's legal. Uh, It's no longer, uh, even though you were a condemned, guilty, criminal, a rebel under the law, you are now acquitted. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. You had a bad record, but now you have a perfect record. How did I get a perfect record? I had a bad record. How did my record get cleaned? It got cleaned because of Jesus. Because of what He did on the cross. That's why the catechism at the very end says, as Paul even notes himself, it's only because of the righteousness of Christ that's been reckoned, declared, imputed to us. That's how it's happened. Now, look back at verse 1 and note this. You've been justified. You have been justified. But how did that happen? By faith. Did you see that? By faith. Now, since you are justified, not, not in order to be justified, what are you justified? Well, you're justified by faith. In other words, just to be clear, you don't clean up your act, uh, you don't put your house in order, and then maybe God will consider justifying you. No. The Father says that when any sinner, when any person, though the vilest offender they be, when they truly believe they, from God a pardon they receive. I just completely messed up that hymn. But, but, but I just remembered the old hymn, right? I was just singing, right? The great things He's taught us, great things He's done. What's the great thing that He's done? He has justified us by faith. And we receive that, friends, with the empty hands of faith. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And we receive that by faith. Only by faith. Now, let me just talk about a little bit of some theological mathematics for a moment. Theological mathematics. Alan Chappelle, I think is how you say the gentleman's name, uh, taught me some theological mathematics. Two principles that I think are key in understanding justification by faith alone. Principle number one. Whenever you add something, you actually subtract in theological mathematics. Let me, let me explain. Whenever you add, you actually subtract. So addition, when it comes to justification, is actually subtraction. So I'll just give you this idea. Let's pretend that I was around when da Vinci was painting the Mona Lisa. And as he's painting the Mona Lisa, I come up to him. As he's putting his paintbrush onto this beautiful painting, I say, hey, da Vinci, do you mind if I help you? Now, what would, what would be happening at that moment? I would be adding to something that's very well done. I would be adding something, and actually by my addition, because I can't paint worth anything, right? I would be subtracting from the Mona Lisa. 
Do you catch that? So whenever we add to what Christ has done, we are subtracting. So whether I add uh, my good works, I add my wisdom, I add my virtue, I add something, I take away from what God has done for me. Grace is no longer grace if you add works. In fact, works subtract from grace. It's never Jesus plus. But second, here's the second principle, catch this. The principle states that whatever you add is actually what really counts for you. When you add something and say, this is what is making me righteous. This is helping me in my justification. This is what's making me right with God. What you add is actually what you really value. It's what you're really banking on. It's what you're really hoping. So if you're hoping that because you prayed a prayer, that's what gets you into heaven. It justifies you before God. What are you really counting on? Not Jesus. You're counting on a prayer or on your baptism or on this work or that I had a pretty good track record and I did a lot of good things in my past. Whatever you add is actually what you value. And when you add anything... To the work of Christ, you take away from His supremacy and His sufficiency in what He's done. So, and I had this in my notes before I saw your banners. In other words, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are justified because we know Scripture alone, right? To the glory of God alone. And that's the good news. In fact, the, ju- the, the reformers were very clear. From, from Luther to Calvin to Zwingli to all the rest, they recognized the key was that word alone. You could add nothing to the work of Christ. Paul says, since therefore we have been justified by faith, and then amazingly, he gives us five benefits. Now actually there's probably eight But because I know you're hungry, I'm going to make it five, and I'll let you figure out what verses 6 through 11 really say. All right? Now, here's my five. In fact, I'm going to have you help me with my outline, okay? This is what I do in my church. This is like interactive preaching, okay? So when I point at you, you have to say justified. So if I point... All right, you didn't do very good. All right, so when you are... All right, let's do it one time. When you are... Good. You have peace with God, according to verse 1. Did you see that? In verse 1 it says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Now, for some today, maybe even here, you don't realize that there has been enmity between you and God. That you and God have been at war because of your rebellion against God. In fact, Paul has been saying for three chapters leading into chapter 4 about how we are under sin, we're in rebellion. He has turned us over to our sin. We have been turned in on ourselves and we, in our, in our desire to, to only please ourselves, we've been in rebellion against God and so we are not at peace. But God, because of what Jesus has done through the Lord Jesus Christ, you see the end of the verse, through our Lord Jesus Christ, He has made us to be at peace. In fact, they're like bookends. We've been justified, and through our Lord Jesus Christ, and right in the middle, we get peace. Now, there's some misunderstanding sometimes when we talk about peace. First of all, sometimes we can think, okay, uh, this will let us have peace, or we need to make the peace. No, this is something that God has done to us. He has given us 
peace. But that peace, first and foremost, is not subjective. Notice the preposition that's used. It's not peace of God. What's it say? Peace with God. Do you see that? It's peace with God, which means it's an objective reality. It's the disposition of God to us as He sees us in a different status. No longer condemned, but accepted, pardoned. His child, that's what's happened. Therefore, you are at peace with God. Now, as Brother Don rightly said, you will begin, if you have that objective peace, to experience. You have this experiential love of God that flows into your heart, as we'll see in just a moment. You will experience this peace. So what's Paul want to do here? Paul wants to show you by this very first benefit, this very first flow out of justification, that you can, you can have a real deep assurance. You can have confidence. Since this, now you know this. You get a deeper assurance of God's love, His peace, by understanding that you are uh, more... Uh, let me put it this way. The more and more you understand your justification, the deeper you understand His love for you. And thus in return, you have a deeper love for the Lord. As one pastor said, there is no more tormented uncertainty of where I stand with God. I want you to think about that for a moment. I remember the years. I, wasn't, I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 18. I remember the years, years, not, not, not days, years in which I stood in torment under the uncertainty of where I stood with God because I understood that I was accountable for my actions. I had guilt in my heart. I felt that subjectively and I knew the reality of it because of what I was doing. But when I trusted in Christ, at that very moment, I had in my heart Heart, a peace with God, and I also had the peace of God in my heart. No condemnation means that there's no separation from His love. It means that I can have peace. But let me be real clear, because some of you maybe even this, this uh, afternoon may be struggling with the accusations of Satan. You see, peace with God doesn't mean that you won't be accused or, or accusations be made against you by Satan. But when you know you're justified by faith, you are able, as Paul talks about, to hold the very shield of faith up and take the fiery darts of the accuser and be able to withstand his assault. Because every time he assaults you, that, oh God, you, you haven't done enough. You aren't enough. You, 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 know, you continue to struggle with this sin. You can hold up that shield knowing that it's not about what you've done, right? Or who you are or if you've done enough. It's about what Christ has done in His life, death, and resurrection. That's where our hope is. In fact, the more that Satan, as Martin Luther used to say, the more that Satan would accuse him and show him the law that he'd broken, guess what Luther would do and what you should do and what I should do? I turn to my Savior and say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. Amen. So I wonder, are you more aware of your past sin? Or are you more aware of the finished work of Jesus on the cross? Do, do you live and feel and think more that God is disappointed in you or that God is delighting in you? 
I, in fact, I, as, as a pastor, I often uh, will ask people, and so some of you have been in my college class that I used to teach a long time ago, I'd often ask, when you think of God, does he have a smile, a delight over you, or is he frowning? Is he, is he kind of just fed up? Is he tired? And, and I could sense from the, the many people that I've talked to that because they don't understand justification, they actually don't understand how God doesn't, he's not frowning. Right? He's delighting in you. Why? Because you've been united to Jesus. And because you're justified and you are in him, he is delighting in you. My friends, that's not another sermon to talk about, the, the discipline of the Lord and how, and how He brings you back. But as a father, knowing of my three sons that Scott talked about, they know that they can have my fatherly love, right? They, they, they eat meals in my home and they sleep in the beds that I provide, right? Sometimes, uh, though, when they're, they're not cleaning their room and they're not taking out the trash and not doing the things that, that you know, I've asked them to do, right? Just the, you know, some of the, I see some parents shaking their heads. Uh, uh, you know, so like, doing things, there can be my fatherly displeasure, but they always know at the end of the day that their father loves them and he delights in them. Yes. So I wonder... Do you know that you're the apple of his eye? That he now is singing over you, the Zachariah says, he's singing over you in the light. I wonder, friends, if that would change how you understand peace with God. But number two, when you are... Okay, some of you got it. There you go. Good. When you are... Justified, right? You have access with God. In fact, I love it. Do you see it in verse 2? Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. I love the also. In fact, if you look down at verse 3, it says, not only that. It's like the infomercial, right? There, there, but wait, there's more, right? Like, so, so here it is. There's not only that you have peace with God, but you have access to God. You have access with Him and through Jesus you have access. Now, let me put it this way. Uh, sometimes you can be at peace with somebody, but, but you've had a war. Not Hatfield and McCoy, but you've been at war. Okay, Maybe this has happened between a husband or wife, or you know, maybe between your roommates, or maybe some friends that you've had. And yes, you are at peace. You've, you've reconciled. There's been biblical peacemaking. But in your heart... There's still this, well, you're not best buds right now, right? I see some, some, some husbands that are shaking their head. They recognize what this is like, right? So, so these things are, there's not this, this warmness that you should feel, right? And, and maybe even this afternoon, you're, you're kind of feeling like, you know, Pastor Jason, like, I, I get that I, I have peace with God, and I think I understand my justification, but... But I often feel as though God's disappointed and, and, and I don't feel the delight. And, and I just wonder, like, maybe I'm not justified. Uh, may, maybe I don't understand what, what's really happened. And so, uh, is, there, is there more? How, in fact, maybe you today just say, hey, I get that I'm, I'm saved because I've trusted in Jesus and I, I know there's a future uh, awaiting me in heaven that, that when I die, I'll, I'll be delivered from this body, I'll be present with the Lord, right? Uh, and it's going to be glorious. But, but how's that impact like right now? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what it means when it says, through Him we have also obtained access. 
You see, access is a word picture. Paul is displaying something. It's actually a, a, a terminology that has to do with the, the temple and, and the tabernacle imagery that you see all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it, probably if you've, if you've studied through the Bible, if you've read through Exodus and, 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 and into the uh, understanding of, of what's happening in the God dwelling that is with His people, that, that you realize that God laid out a lot of restrictions, a lot of barriers, a lot of, a lot of boundaries. He, he limited access. And, and when you begin to read them, in fact, in my reading, I'm in, I'm in Leviticus now, but I've been in Exodus, and I was just stunned by the, the, the way that everything's laid out. And, and, and the fact, the further you get in, what happens? The more and more you're restricted. So, so only certain people can go into the temple court and then only those can go into the holy place. And then you've got a, what, a holy of holies and, and, and there with the ark, like only the high priest can go. And so the more and more that you come in, uh, the more and more access is restricted to only certain people that are unclean or have this qualification. And so you don't have what? You don't have access. In fact, it's not that God doesn't want His people. In fact, He wants His people to dwell with Him. But because He's holy and they're unclean, He has to guard and protect His people. But I want you to catch something. When you looked into the temple, and you looked through the holy place, and you were looking towards the holy of holies, what did you see? You actually didn't see the ark. Though the ark's there, you don't see it. What do you see? You see this great big veil. Like this big, huge curtain. Not like the curtains in your home that are just like little tiny, like you know, paper weight, like very thick curtain. In fact, the curtain was this thick as the span. I know I've got long fingers, right? Like span of my hand, though. Six, seven, eight inches potentially. That's how long the curtain is. And what's striking is that curtain kept those out from seeing and being in the presence of God. In fact, when the high priest would go in you know, uh, uh, and offer sacrifices, he had to do all of these things. You know, the, the idea that they would potentially tie a rope around in case he was not indeed clean, in case he died, they would pull him out. So, so all, all of these things are happening. But, but notice this. What happened on the cross when Jesus died? That's exactly right. It's ripped from top to bottom. Notice this. It wasn't ripped from the bottom up. It was ripped from the top down. Like you know, you remember those strong guys that used to like rip telephone books? They probably still do it, right? But like they just ripped from top to bottom. And what happened? It showed access. That's exactly right. It showed access. When you know that you have been justified, you know now that you have access. Through Him. That's through Jesus. Into the very presence of God. You have access into the King of kings. Into the Lord of lords. You don't need to make an appointment. Because why? Because you're His child. You're one who has been justified. In fact, now you don't just pray. You have access in prayer to Him. In fact, I always tell our church, look, you never just pray because prayer is the work. There's no just to it. Just minimizes what you have in prayer because you have access. So Keller, Tim Carroll used to often say, and you'll see it every once in a while, uh, this this quote that says, the only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water is his child. We have that kind of access. In fact, there's a famous picture of John F. Kennedy. And in the picture, there's all his staff and all these dignitaries that are around him. But what is he doing in the picture? He's actually playing with his child. 
So, so everybody wants his attention, but who has his attention? His child has his attention. That's the kind of access that you have. In fact, Paul doesn't want you just to be able to define justification. He wants you to be able to understand how much God loves you and that He's given you access and therefore you will go to Him in prayer. Think about it for just a moment. Think about this reality. If you know that you have this kind of access to God, how would that change your prayer life? How would it change the boldness of your prayers? How would it change the things that you pray about knowing that you have access? I'm stunned when you read through John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus says, it's five, six, maybe more times, Jesus says, you ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. That freaks us out. Because we think that's a blank check and that's all prosperity gospel. And, and it ain't, you know, whoa, 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 like, wait, hold on, Jesus. Like, you're saying I got to act like blank check, like, I can do anything? Like, anything? And I know you're thinking, like, okay, there's cars and there, you know, yeah. But I want you to catch this. What Jesus knows is that you don't realize you have access, He realizes that you're hesitant. He realizes that like a child who's asking a father for something big, you might hesitate because it's such a big request. But God delights as your father to answer your prayers. And friend, when you realize you've been justified, you have access to that. And you do it in His name. And so can I encourage you even this afternoon... As you're beginning even to pray and even pray uh, uh, tonight and you're thinking over things that are stirring on your heart or burden on your heart, do you realize I have access to the Father? I mean, what else could He give me? I, I have His Son. I have, I have all these benefits. I have peace with Him. And He's given me access to come at any time with all my baggage, with all my burdens, and cast them on Him. That's amazing news. But not only do we have peace with God, and we have access, when you are good, you have, you have the hope of heaven. Did you see that in verse 2? Verse 2 at the very end says, And we rejoice in the hope of glory. The hope of the glory of God. In fact, it's really interesting that in some ways Paul, kind of uh, through these different tenses of the verbs here, he kind of lays out the, the different ways of understanding our salvation. So at the, the beginning, he's, he's kind of talking about the past. We have peace with God because of this past act and what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. We have peace with God. But we also have access. So even right now, currently, we have access to God in the present. But now, Paul points forward and says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We await a day in which we're hoping in. Now, I know what you're thinking. When you hear the word hope, our culture has trained us to think that's like wishing on a star. That it is kind of like wishful thinking. But actually, biblically, biblically, The word hope is a confidence. It's a surety. It's this reality that has been purchased, yes, in the past. We know it in the present, but we can be confident of it in the future. Christian hope is a certainty. It's a confidence. It's assurance. It's a certainty of eternal life. And I wonder, just this afternoon, how much you and I actually think about heaven? How much do we actually meditate on glory? How much do we think about the reality that one day we will be in the presence of our Lord? 
I wonder, especially in these days that, that yes, are filled with, with turmoil and just all kinds of issues, polarized country, polarized churches, polarized in so many different ways, at so different levels, not even to get into it. But I wonder if we, as God's people, began to meditate more on the hope of glory, that we actually rejoice in it. Now, I know you're going to think this is coming out of left field. But as I began to meditate on that reality and think about the hope of heaven, I began to understand why the Hallmark Christmas movies are so popular. Now, I know you're thinking, Pastor, like, I don't get it. But they are. I, I, I know that one because at least in my household they're popular, and that's a little bit anecdotal, but I know from just ratings that Hallmark Christmas movies are extremely popular. I'm about to offend every lady in here, okay? But, but I think as uh, uh, you begin to recognize the romance stories, and, and, I, and I started to realize that the one beauty of a Hallmark Christmas story is that in the end, it always works out, Right? Like, like, like it all comes together at the very end. I mean, it shouldn't. There's no way. It's impossible. But it always works. Right? I mean, it's, it, yeah. Yes, they're sappy, they're corny, they're confusing at some level. But, 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 but they always work out and everything comes together in the end. And I began to realize that actually the reason that Hallmark is so good at their stories is because in some way they're mimicking the master story. They're mimicking the story of the Bible that even though we who were created by God broke off the engagement, right? And we went after other lovers. God in His mercy sent His Son and His Son actually wooed us back into a relationship with Him. And we were delighted at His love for us because we saw one who in His beauty and in no way did we deserve, He actually laid down His life for us. He died in our place. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and our hearts were transformed. And we realized that one day because of what He's done, we're awaiting the greatest wedding feast of all at the very end of time. And so, so, like, happily ever after. That's what we're waiting for. And it's glorious. In fact, when you know the ending, how does, or what does that cause you to do? It causes you to rejoice. That's what Paul says. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, <laughs> when, you, when you look at Paul's life, I don't have time. I could probably unpack it a little bit. But you look at all of the trials and all of the suffering and all of the persecution and the very burden of the churches that were upon him and all his missionary travels. And yet, one of the definite marks of all of Paul's letters is what? He's full of joy. In fact, he doesn't say, I rejoice, though. What's he say? He says, we rejoice. He's never met the Romans. But he knows that if they're Christians, what's true about them? That they are people of joy. Why are they people of joy? Because they know what Jesus has done for them and they know what awaits them in the future. Kevin DeYoung just recently tweeted, and I typically don't like do this, but I thought this was good. So he said, look, uh, we as Christians, we don't know the next chapter. We don't know what's coming next, but we do know the last chapter. That's good. Right? There's a reality that we don't know the next chapter, but we do know the last chapter chapter. We know what the Lord will do and has done, and so we rejoice in the hope of glory. Let me move on to my fourth one. And so when you are... uh, You guys are good. 
uh, you have joy in suffering. Do you see that in verse 3 and 4? Verse 3 says it this way, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint, right? It doesn't disappoint, because why? It doesn't put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, in fact, when you often think about joy... You often think about trials and you think about suffering because those things take away joy. At least that's what we suppose. But Paul doesn't say, notice this, Paul doesn't say we have joy in spite of suffering. That is, we tough it out. Paul doesn't say we enjoy suffering. That's masochism. But Paul does say we rejoice in suffering knowing. Did you catch that in verse 3? We rejoice in suffering knowing, knowing that God uses suffering to deepen our experience of His love. In fact, when you've been justified by Jesus, by grace, suffering doesn't derail you. Do you know why? Because it actually sets off in you a chain reaction. Do you see the chain in verse 3 and 4? That chain is, is that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. That's interesting, isn't it? What you know in your Christian life is that when trials come, when suffering comes to you, that that suffering now will produce in you a deeper endurance, a more character. Actually, it produces in you hope. The very thing that you would think would be taken from you is actually given to you by God. God actually uses your trials, whatever you're going through today. And I know that some of you are. I, I know in a room this big and with this many people, in fact, I just know it because that's the human life. We go through trials, right? And as you're going through that trial that you're thinking of right now that just came to your mind, what you need to know is that that suffering, that trial, is working in you endurance and then character and then hope. And that hope that we have is being poured into us. The love of Christ is being now poured into us because of that. So I just want you to know, and I'll kind of end this point, Christians see suffering not as a sign of disapproval, but actually an opportunity to be refined. The Lord takes the dross of those things. In fact, when you go through a trial, what often happens? Those things that you really sometimes prioritize and made the suffering really hard, the Lord shows you that maybe you need to loosen your grip. Uh, when I was in DeSoto, I... I uh, was with an older man one time and a big tornado was coming our way. And In fact, there were reports that it even touched the ground not far away. This is several years ago. And, and I know that he lived in a trailer park and I was nervous to, to, for him to go home. And, and I said, bro, you're going to be okay. Like, maybe we should stay here and we can go down to the basement. And, and uh, he said, no. He said, I'm okay. And he held up his hand. I was like, what? And, and, and I said, bro, why are you holding up your hand? He goes, well, I learned in my life a long time ago that I was holding on to too many things. But through trials, the Lord opened my hand. And now everything I have, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Right? I'm okay, whatever He does, because ultimately I know He has me. Amen. Now friends, I mean, I was a young man, like cheering up, thinking, okay, <laughs> yeah, wow. But, but, but He had open hands. He said, everything I receive from the Lord, I just have open hands. He can take it at any time He needs. I wonder, friends, if you know that in your trials. That when you're justified, you can have joy in suffering. But lastly, lastly, when you are good, you can have the Spirit-given love. 
In fact, it's not just a few drips of love. Brother Don said it's this pouring out, this flooding of His love that's poured into our hearts. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's, a, it's actually an understanding of our adoption. And I, I want to unpack another brother that unpacked it uh, last night. But what I'm stunned is, is if you look at verse 6, what it does for you. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak. Notice all the connections. In fact, throughout you see these words, For one will scarcely die. Or if you look down at verse 9, Since therefore we now have. Or verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled. In other words, there's all these links all throughout verses 6 through 11, which indicate this. The reason that we lack assurance, the reason we don't experience His love, is because we fail to focus on the one spot where He has revealed it. And where's that? At the cross. Do you see that? If you look through verses 6-11, through what is Paul trying to put before you, placard before you? He's trying to put before you the cross. The Christ, or the God has demonstrated His love for us in that Christ died in our place. He substituted Himself. He took uh, the very wrath of God. He appeased the wrath of God against us. And so, friend, if you want to experience a deeper love for God, a Spirit-given love for God, where must you meditate? Where must you look? Where must your attention be focused? It can't be on your circumstances. It can't be on your trials. But if it's on the cross, that is where the Lord has promised in His Word to fill you with His love. And so you go to that very means and you meditate and you focus and you put your heart's intent on everything that has happened at the cross. And by the way, that includes from His very life to death to His ascension to His returning again. Now... Robert Murray McChaney used to say, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And for some of you, especially younger people, can I encourage you, especially as social media wants to always turn, like all the likes and all the, 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 the things that social media does is it turns you inwards so that you might focus on yourself, that you in this very moment take your eyes off yourself and put them on Christ. Take ten looks at His love for you and what He's done before you take one look at yourself. The Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts. God shows His love where? Jesus on the cross. Let me end just with this. In history, you may remember from your history classes that the Aztecs, the Aztec Indians, I know this is going to seem strange, but, 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 but they thought gold was the excrement of the gods. I'll just I'll try to put that the nicest way I could. Right? So, so they, they, the Aztecs really believed, they, they, they had this understanding that gold didn't have value, it was just kind of the excrements of the god. And so what did they do? They actually gave it away to the conquistadors. They, they gave it away, gold. right? And the conquistadors hoarded it. And so what happened? Well, what happened is it led to their ruin and to their slavery. And there we can, over dinner, I'll discuss with you the history. But, but nonetheless, I think in some ways this is a picture of what we can do when we give away our justification. That is, we give it away in that we don't think about it, we don't meditate it, we forget it, and we assume it. What happens? We, then we lose the incredible benefits that the Lord has given. When you do not understand and you do not experience your justification and you give it away, then it leads to your ruin and you lose your peace with God. 
Right? Your access, your hope of heaven, your joy, your service. And so can I just encourage you just tonight, that if you want to experience the very love of God, you want to treasure the very love of Christ for you, that He's indeed our prize and our possession, to know that, that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to Him. We're owned by Him in body and soul, life and in death to a faithful Savior who has given His life for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, verse uh, uh, number one. Then tonight... Meditate on the love of Christ in your justification. And so let's pray together. Our Father, it's been good to open up Your Word in these very few moments with my brothers and sisters. And I ask that You, by the very work of Your Spirit, would implant this Word in our hearts. And by the very work of Your Spirit, watering this this very seed of the Gospel, that it might grow and bear great fruit the very fruit of the Spirit in our hearts, love and peace and joy, gentleness, self-control. Oh, Lord, that it would overflow and it would overflow into this community. Lord, I pray that as we continue to, to think about and to meditate on together the very love of Christ for His people, that that might be a stirring reminder that we have good news to share with others. And that we might do that, both in word and in deed. And we pray that we do that for the good of this church and the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.